Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Ziad Abu Rish. He's an expert in modern Middle East history, social movements, and popular protests, and U.S. Middle Eastern policy. He also is the director of the Middle East and North African Studies program at Ohio University. We're talking about the impact of President Trump's latest foreign policy moves in the Middle East. Trump's decisions have caused concern from many of America's allies. President Trump has uh, made a lot of decisions recently about the Middle East I just want to go through some of these to see really what kind of ramifications they have. I know our European allies and others are concerned, but let's start with the almost immediate troop withdrawal from Syria. What what issues does that bring about? Well, I mean, I think there are a number of issues that we have to keep in mind with regards to the U.S. Uh, true presence in Syria. The first is that it's never been clear uh, either to observers or to maybe uh, the Obama administration and the Trump administration what are the precise goals of the U.S. presence in Syria. Uh, We've heard conflicting analyses regarding uh, supporting the opposition, uh, containing uh, Iran and Russia, fighting ISIS, supporting the Kurds. Uh, And so I think we should be clear that uh, the U.S. presence in Syria is a very convoluted one that has competing interests motivating it, and as a result has been actually ineffective and done more harm than good. Uh, I tend to be one of the people who believes that uh, even a broken clock tells time correctly once a day. And in this case, I think the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria is a good thing. The question is, how will it be done? Um, That's the key issue, and that's the key issue that uh, um, the forces on the ground in the areas where the U.S. troops are, and particularly those in the Kurdish areas and groups that are identified as Kurdish political groups, their main concerns are the terms around which this U.S. withdrawal is going to happen, and whether those terms will include the ability of those uh, ground forces 
to negotiate a kind of arrangement with the Assad regime. The Kurds have been our allies in Syria. I know when the president made his announcement, there were a few days immediately following where the Kurds were extremely worried that the Turkish government would draw a bead on them and try to wage war with with the Kurds without the U.S. being there to intercede. Was that a realistic fear? Absolutely. I think it's fair to say that uh, no one has been a stalwart and long-term ally of the Kurds, whether in Syria, in Turkey, or Iraq. There are plenty of examples of external actors or regional actors allying or supporting various Kurdish uh, political movements, whether in Turkey, whether in Syria, whether in Iraq, for purposes of political expediency. And then when it is again politically expedient to abandon them, that happens. Uh, And in fact, this was one of the initial discussions that occurred within Kurdish and other Syrian uh, political circles when the U.S. decided to deploy troops and supposedly ally on the ground with these Kurdish troops, that there would be a, come a time when that alliance would be abandoned. Um, so it is no surprise that that has happened. I think the real question, Tom, is will the groups on the ground, uh, and especially the SDF, which is the primary uh, Kurdish political group in the parts of Syria that we're talking about, Will they be allowed to negotiate and put in place arrangements with the Syrian regime that will allow them to avoid uh, the possible intervention and confrontation with Turkish military forces? That is a primary goal of the SDF and other forces right now on the ground trying to negotiate with the Syrian government. But you might be aware that very recently the U.S. government has come out and actually said it opposes the Kurdish groups making any arrangements or cooperation with the Syrian regime. So the Trump administration uh, wants wants its cake and wants to eat it as well. It wants to evacuate at the same time that it doesn't want to allow the Kurdish forces on the ground to strike the type of alliances that would secure their long-term interests in whatever future Syria holds. Um, And this, again, only shows that what's driving U.S. policy is not the concern for the Kurds or the question of democracy, but simply a different set of uh, calculations. And I should be clear, Tom, here that the problem certainly is dramatically exacerbated with the Trump administration, but the problem of U.S. policy in Syria began with the Obama administration. And it would have probably begun with the Republican administration if that was in power as well, because when it comes to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, we don't necessarily see that much difference, except in rare instances between Republican and Democratic presidential administrations. The president talked about the, uh, in his mind, immediate withdrawal of the troops from, from Syria. You talk about the terms of withdrawal being uh, paramount in, in, in the uh, situation. What kind of terms of withdrawal do you think might be legitimate? Well, you know, I I don't think it's my place as an outsider who's not living under the conditions on the ground uh, to dictate what I view as legitimate and illegitimate. 
And I also think it's not the place of the U.S. government to determine what is legitimate and illegitimate in Syria. I think in this case, we need to uh, 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 listen to the parties on the ground, and in particular the parties that the U.S. government claims that it is in support of and allied with, and listen to what they are asking for. They seem to be, uh, from what I can tell, uh, asking for enough time to negotiate the terms of what will happen in these areas once the U.S. troops withdraw. And I think what's really important to recognize in, in this instance, Tom, is that the withdrawal of Syrian forces from these areas initially was very different than their withdrawal from other parts of Syria as the uprising turned into an insurgency uh, and then civil war. Uh, there was no armed opposition that rose up or um, sought to expel the Syrian government's presence in these areas. This was a negotiated withdrawal initially, as the Syrian regime wanted to focus its attention to other parts of the country. The Syrian government uh, continued to pay the salaries of state employees in these areas. Until today, the Syrian government continues to do that. Uh, the Syrian government continues to operate an office that registers births, deaths, marriages, divorces, inheritance, and other such uh, bureaucratic procedures in these areas. And so I think when we talk about the terms of what happens after the U.S. withdrawal, we're really talking about what is the power sharing or power structure in place uh, in these areas. What flags are going to be flown? Is it uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, flag that's championed by the SDF, or is it the Syrian government flag? Um, who will be in charge of uh, local uh, uh, municipal uh, matters and issues? Uh, what is going to happen with regards to the presence of arms in these areas? Will they need to be surrendered? Uh, what are the conditions over which who will be arming uh, the future transition in military and police presence on the ground. Uh, these are the kinds of issues that I think the SDF and other groups need, and I've requested time to hammer out with the Syrian regime. But I have to remind us that not only has the Trump administration claimed it is going to pursue an immediate withdrawal, it has also claimed that it opposes any and all alliances or arrangements that would be made between the SDF and other groups on the ground with the Syrian regime. And again, so here we have the United States making a difficult situation even worse because its priorities are not the well-being of the Kurdish groups on the ground, but its broader geostrategic calculations vis-a-vis -vis the Syrian regime, Iran, and Russia. I want to get to Iran and Russia in a moment, but while we're on Syria, the president has uh, declared total victory over ISIS, and almost everyone besides the president has said, not so fast. Uh, that's probably not true. Uh, give us your perspective. Well, you know, uh, there's, there's no doubt that uh, the phenomenon of ISIS 
uh, posed a dramatic shock uh, to the well-being and lives of uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Syria and Iraq. Um, and its defeat is uh, uh, an important element of any future um, sustainable development uh, uh, in Syria or Iraq. Uh, but I think we should be clear that um, it was U.S. policies that helped produce the conditions for the emergence of ISIS, which began in Iraq as a result of the complete destruction and societal breakdown in the aftermath of the 2003 U.S. invasion and then a subsequent occupation and policies of restructuring Iraqi politics, society, and economics. Um, and so for the United States to claim credit for defeating ISIS, uh, without taking responsibility for creating the conditions that led to this emergence, I think is, uh, uh, you know, disingenuine and, and not really uh, a, a transparent accounting of what transpired in uh, Syria and Iraq. I also think that uh, we need to take into account that the coalition uh, airstrikes and artillery strikes against supposed ISIS targets in Iraq and Syria have resulted in some of the most dramatic accounts of uh, collateral damage as far as civilian populations are concerned. And as of December 2018, the U.S. has adopted the policy that it is no longer going to announce where and when and how many air and artillery strikes it is deploying in Iraq or Syria. So what we're really seeing, I think, is uh, a kind of clouding of whatever little transparency there was to judge what the United States is and is not doing with regards to its anti-ISIS campaign. Um, again, the idea that the solution for problems in the Middle East is the U.S. flying bombers and dropping bombs on strategic targets in whatever number of countries, as if that is the panacea for whatever is happening in the Middle East, we really need to get away from. Um, I don't give the United States or the Trump administration any credit for the defeat of ISIS. I think the defeat of ISIS uh, 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 could have been uh, accomplished much earlier because ISIS only thrives in areas where there is a total breakdown of state authority. And the question then becomes, how can uh, different external powers and local actors uh, conduct themselves in a way that does not undermine state authority while at the same time advances whatever reformist agendas they have. Let's move, if we could, to uh, Afghanistan. The president also has announced a withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Is that situation similar to the one in Syria, easier to withdraw the troops than Syria, uh, note some of the similarities and differences, if you would, please. Well, I, I have to admit that I, I know far less about Afghanistan than I do about the other parts uh, of the world that we've been talking about. Um, of course, the uh, U.S. Uh, war in Afghanistan uh, has been ongoing since 2001. Uh, so there is a type of militarization and a type of external intervention in uh, Afghanistan that has long preceded 
2011, which is when the uprising emerged in Syria and then transformed uh, uh, into various ways. Um, unlike uh, in Iraq, uh, I think the situation in Afghanistan uh, was far more removed from the strategic calculations of great powers and regional powers. Um, therefore, the United States and its allies were able to proceed in a manner uh, that was less opposed uh, in Afghanistan than elsewhere. Um, but I also think we recognize the fact that after um, more than 10 uh, years, actually, uh, sorry, we are in 2019 now, the war in Afghanistan started in 2001. So after more than 18 years, we're still talking about the Taliban. We're still talking about on the ground armed groups that this idea that they can simply be eradicated is impossible and that there clearly has to be some kind of negotiated settlement that allows for the creation of a political process in which people feel they have a stake in and would transition into and participate into rather than simply playing a zero-sum game with certain groups that constantly excludes them and thus constantly incentivizes them to operate through armed militias and other such aspects. It seems, though, that we, from an outsider layperson's point of view, that that the U.S. is not really concerned about negotiated settlement. Uh, it seems that we just want to get out, declare victory, save face, and get on with uh, the, you know, make America great again, or whatever the political slogan is of the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there is definitely a sense uh, that I think you're echoing by certain observers of uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy that one of the things that Trump seems to be doing is setting himself up so that by the time of his administration, he can claim that he didn't simply uh, uh, carry on the baggage that um, he assumed once he came into office whether that be uh, Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, whether that be um, the campaign against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, whether that be U.S. troops in some of the uh, uh, parts of Syria that people popularly refer to as the Kurdish areas, or whether that be the U.S. presence uh, in Afghanistan. Um, but, you know, because it's the Trump administration, but because we have a long record of U.S. foreign policy, we need to be really skeptical that any of these decisions, whether by the Trump administration before or after, are in the interest of the people on the ground. This is simply a slight shift in the political compass and strategic compass of people in the White House who are playing a different long-term game whose calculations don't factor with the livelihood and best interests of people on the ground elsewhere. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, 
forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let's move over, if we could, to Iran and uh, Iraq. Uh, the president is talking about uh, increasing troop presence uh, in Iraq. Uh, the way the administration is structuring things, Iran is the major enemy of in the region, uh, and we're we've broken the treaty, the the nuclear treaty. Uh, we we see them as the major aggressor in the region, and to put troops in Iraq as a threat to Iran uh, seems to many to be reckless. Uh, it, does it have a strategic advantage? I mean, is this something that's necessary? Well, to to claim whether something is necessary or not depends on what ultimate goal are you striving towards? Right. Um, early on from the Trump administration, and uh, in particular with uh, uh, Michael Bolton uh, coming onto the Trump administration team, uh, we have seen a significant and systematic escalation of anti-Iran rhetoric and policy. Um, it is clear that the Trump administration is uh, playing a zero-sum game with regards to the uh, Iranian government and the Iranian state in the region. Um, and clearly, they are escalating. And you have people in the Trump administration who are openly calling, not just for further sanctions on Iraq, but for military action against Iran. Sorry, I meant Iran, not Iraq. Right. Uh, people in the Trump administration not only calling for increased sanctions on Iran, but also military action on Iran. There is no doubt that Iran is a regional power. Um, the problem that the United States has with Iran as a regional power is that it's a regional power that challenges or is opposed to the U.S. and its regional allies, right? Um, Saudi Arabia is a regional power, but that's not a problem because... Saudi Arabia's foreign policies, as destructive as they are, are in line with U.S. foreign policies for the region. But Iran is not. And we see with the withdrawal from the nuclear agreement, increasing sanctions on Iran, uh, changing the terms of whatever future negotiations might happen to resume the uh, nuclear treaty, that um, the Trump administration is systematically uh, escalating both rhetoric and policy with regards to Iran. Um, and if that's the goal, then the Trump administration's plan to place more troops in Iraq is 
certainly moving towards that direction. Uh, if the plan is to reach some kind of detente with Iran, to accept the fact that we just marked the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution of 1979, that this regime is not going anywhere, that this regime, despite a whole set of challenges, despite a whole set of problems, including its authoritarianism, has a certain social base and in some ways reflects uh, a type of local dynamic that the U.S. and regional powers need to come to terms with, that is what needs to happen if we want to move forward in the sense of creating a better Middle East. But the idea that the future of the Middle East can somehow exclude the Iranian government or the Iranian regime, or even worse, that the United States wants to see the overthrow of the Iranian regime, which it has not made a secret in the past, nor is it making a secret today, I think is, is a real problem. So if we move troops out of Syria, move troops out of Afghanistan, bulk them up in Iraq as a threat to Iran, uh, what I'm hearing you say is that you're not ruling out a potential military conflict in, in Iran. No, I, I don't think it is responsible to rule out a potential military conflict with Iran, given who is in the White House and given the team of people surrounding President Donald Trump. Let me be very clear. Whether there is a confrontation or not is solely in the hands and in the power of the United States right now. I think uh, the past several years, have demonstrated uh, that the Iranian regime uh, is not going to compromise on certain issues, but is certainly not interested in behaving or acting in some type of regional hegemonic uh, manner that uh, threatens U.S. Uh, or other interests, by the way. If we, if, and there certainly has been an expansion of Iranian influence in the region. But if we track, Tom, that expansion of Iranian presence and influence, it has followed the mistakes and openings that U.S. policy has created, not in the U.S. being less aggressive, but in the U.S. being over-aggressive. The, the, the role that Iran is able to play in Iraq today is a direct result of the U.S. invasion and occupation. The role that Iran is able to play in Afghanistan is a function of um, uh, U.S. policies after 2001. The role that Iran is able to play in Syria today is because the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar transformed what was an anti-authoritarian uprising in Syria to a chess game to geostrategically redefine the Middle East. Um, and so given these issues, I think we have to really understand who is in the driver's seat when it comes to matters of escalation and confrontation with Iran. And the reality is that the record shows it's the United States, especially with the Trump administration and people like Michael Bolton. I want to talk a, a moment or two about Saudi Arabia, obviously an ally to, to the U.S., but one that uh, obviously has difficulties with the killing of, of Khashoggi, uh, also with the war in Yemen, uh, or Yemen. What, what, 
they're our ally, but we have to put up with all these heinous activities. Is that the is that the strategic situation there? Well, you know, Tom, isn't that the strategic situation anywhere? Yeah, I guess I mean, you're right. When when the U.S. was allied with the, the Pinochet regime in Chile, when the U.S. was allied with apartheid South Africa right. and labeled Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress a terrorist organization, right. when the U.S. was allied with Saddam Hussein uh, for certain periods of time, um, there is, uh, with the U.S. alliance with Israel, who has been uh, in violation of international law uh, and various uh, U.N. Security Council resolutions for several decades. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think what we see as an apparent contradiction between so-called American values and uh, uh, actual U.S. policy should surprise us or is unique to the Middle East, right? The United States is a global power. Some would use the term empire. And in fact, after 2003, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats were all debating whether the term empire is appropriate or not. It was, it was not a taboo word uh, in that discussion. Um, the situation in Saudi Arabia is that people who know Saudi Arabia, including uh, the U.S. intelligence services, the State Department and various administrations, know very clearly what the Saudi Arabian regime is capable of and not capable of, and what the Saudi regime has done historically and what it is doing today. Um, and in this sense, Tom, I just want to say, and this is one of the reasons I really admire your show, uh, because no matter who's on, uh, you, you're, you're, you're asking the critical questions about all actors, uh, internal and external. Um, it was only in the last three to four years before the Khashoggi murder, that the Washington Post and the New York Times were lavishing huge space for people to write op-eds praising Mohammed bin Salman as uh, the reformer in waiting, as if, as if he was some kind of messiah. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, Saudi activists, Saudi intellectuals, Saudi dissidents have been saying that this is a continuation of the authoritarian uh, 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 brutal rule of the uh, Saud family. This is not some benevolent dictator on the rise. And these people were ignored, and it was only after someone working with the Washington Post was assassinated that all of a sudden everyone acted surprised. Saudi citizens weren't surprised. Uh, uh, Longtime scholars of Saudi Arabia weren't surprised. Um, and so what we have in Saudi Arabia today is what we've always had in Saudi Arabia, which is the United States in pursuit of its interest uh, uh, of intervening and managing the region, uh, strikes alliances with uh, governments, not on the basis of their democratic credentials, not on the basis of their concern for human rights, not on the basis of whether they are in the interests of the people or not, but whether they are in the interests of advancing U.S. foreign policy objectives. And on that front, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates are three key pillars uh, of the United States system of alliance in the region. Except for being anti-Iranian regime, 
Is there a U.S. foreign policy emerging in the Middle East, or is it just ad hoc decision-making? It seems to an outsider that we're just getting a patchwork of fairly impetuous decisions without a long-term endgame or goal. I think that's a great question, um, Tom, and I, I, I think we are yet to properly assess whether or not there has been a shift in U.S. foreign policy uh, in terms of its overall approach to the region uh, in uh, uh, the last five to ten years. Um, as a historian, I'm someone who thinks that we need a little bit of time to, to, to better assess that. That being said, um, I think we should be clear that uh, the United States has, uh, through the Trump administration and through the Obama administration before it, maintained its alliances with certain regional powers, uh, primarily Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, it has maintained its uh, military alliance with Egypt, despite the uprising that overthrew a military dictatorship and then a military coup that overthrew the civilian government that came to power as right. a result of that uprising. Um, I think we continue to see the maintenance, if not expansion, of a U.S. military presence. I mean, we're counting troops coming into and coming out of places like Iraq and Syria. But we should count the number of bases that have been constructed, the number of bases that are maintained, the number of ports of call that exist in the Middle East that the United States is able to use as part of its global strategy. This is to say nothing of what we've seen with regards to uh, continuing the policy of preventing any just resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and any realization of Palestinian aspirations for self-determination, the continued policy of treating Iran as a pariah state and seeking to exclude it from regional dynamics. Um, and this is to say nothing of the doubling down with the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, the cutting of aid to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, um, and a number of other policies that you and I have discussed in the past or that have happened since. So um, while what we're seeing from the Trump administration might appear to be ad hoc policies, I think we have to remember that there's a long history of U.S. policy in the Middle East before the Trump administration. And while he is specifically enhancing certain elements and changing other elements, the long-term trajectory of U.S. policy in the Middle East seems to be unaffected. There is no rethinking of the U.S. role in the Middle East. There is a rethinking of the U.S. role in Syria, but that's not a rethinking of the U.S. role in the Middle East because, you know, Syria was lost, so to speak, strategically long before uh, these troops entered that area. And it seems that we factor in the Russian influence here, too, that this is really a strategic game between two major powers, with the Middle East being the pawns. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I would agree with that. Although, I think if you were to ask the U.S. administration 
or several people in mainstream U.S. policy circles, would you rather have a Russian presence in Syria or an Iranian presence in Syria? They would tell you, we'll take the Russian presence. And why is that? Because for them, Iran is the main enemy in the Middle East. It it has served as the main obstacle, the main challenge to uh, U.S. Uh, dominance in the region and the attempt of U.S. allies in the region to dominate the region, such as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And uh, um, it is clear that the Saudi regime, the Emirati regime, and the Israeli regime all are in agreement that Iran is the number one problem. Okay. So yeah. let's let's be very clear. For all the talk about an Arab-Israeli conflict and uh, and uh, all the talk about Israel being an isolated state in the region and so on and so forth, you currently have a moment today in the Middle East, and you've had this for some time, where the Israeli government, the Saudi government, and the Emirati government are 100% on the same page with the Trump administration of the need and desire to escalate a confrontation with Iran. Well, that's probably on the horizon, and once we get closer to that, we want to get back with you and and talk again. Thank you so much for your conversation today. Thank you for having me, Tom, and for all the work you and your team do. Today, we've been talking with Middle East expert Dr. Ziad Rish about the destabilizing moves in the Middle East by the Trump administration. Spectrum is produced by WOEB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at NPR One. You can also find us at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to your podcast outlet.